Hey, good. So, yeah, we're in Exodus chapter 3 this morning. You can turn there in your Bibles, making our way through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, as you come to your seats there, let's, let's just open our time in prayer in the Word. Lord, we just come before you this morning, and we thank you for the written Word of God. We love the written Word because the written Word points us to the living Word. And Jesus, we want to grow in relationship with you. We want to grow in our understanding of you. And Lord, I just pray that our hearts would not be of stone this morning, Lord, but that they would be soft, that they would be uh, broken up ground, Lord, for which the seed of the word can um, take root and grow. And Lord, we just uh, we thank you uh, for this journey we've been taking through Exodus. And this morning, we just ask your anointing, your blessing upon the teaching of the word, Lord. We pray that... Uh, your spirit would just bring unction and power and uh, application to every one of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on, so li- little review to bring you up to speed. Uh, if you're visiting this morning or haven't been here for uh, recently to hear where we've been at, but uh, we left off with Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3. He's been in the desert tending his father-in-law's sheep. Uh, They've been making their annual migration around the deserts of Midian with the sheep, and he arrives at Mount Horeb, Exodus chapter 3 tells us, and something catches his his attention, a a burning bush. And so as he turns from uh, the monotonous routine of desert living to take in this sight of this burning bush, it catches his eye that although the bush burns, it's not consumed. And, you know, many believe that, uh, many scholars say it was an acacia tree. Now, they're common in that area. Acacia trees in that area grow to about 10 to 12 feet in size. And so, you know, I don't know what you picture in your mind's eye in regards to a bush burning, but I would say picture this tree 10 or 12 feet tall, uh, consumed in flame. And we read in Exodus chapter 3 that standing in the midst of the flame uh, was the angel of the Lord. And as Moses turned to take in the sight and saw these things, the Bible tells us that God called to him from out of the bush. And so the angel of the Lord is identified as the Lord here in this story. It's what they often call a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearing of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And so as the Lord began to speak uh, to Moses, he said to him, I'm the God of your father, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac and of Jacob. I have seen the affliction of my people Israel in the land of Egypt. I have seen the bondage that they are under as they're living there as slaves. I've, I've heard their cry, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver my people. And... I've remembered my covenant with Abraham and go, I am sending you as my chosen instrument to be, uh, you know, in a sense, the hand of God's deliverance for the people of Israel, the instrument of, of God's task. And we know the story. We talked about this last week, but Moses uh, first responded to the Lord with a question and he said, who am I? Who am I that I should lead your people, Israel, out of Egypt? And the Lord's answer to him was this. I will be with you. 
Moses says, God, who am I? I'm insignificant. And God says back to him uh, what I think is probably the greatest promise that you read in the scriptures. It's a promise given to many Bible characters and in many Bible accounts throughout the pages of scripture, the Lord promises, I am with you. I will be with you. And the sense of it is this. When Moses says, who am I? God says, that's not the important question. The important thing is who I am. I'm God. And I will be with you. And as a sign uh, that I am with you, you will lead my people to this mountain and they will worship me here. And so Moses responds with a second question to the Lord. He says, okay, after he says, who am I? Well, then he says, well, then who are you? Uh, first he says, I'm insignificant. And then when the Lord meets him in that place, he says, well, then I'm ignorant. I'm ignorant about who you are, God. And God says to him in verse 14 of chapter three, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And so God reveals in this story to Moses, his name. He reveals to Moses, his nature, uh, his name. I am Yahweh. I am the all sufficient one. I am whatever you need is the sense. It's that verb in, in Hebrew to be, I will be what you need me to be. You know, often uh, we worship God as the great I was, you know, we think back to the past and we think of the cross and all that was accomplished for us on the cross. And we think over our own history and we think of the blood shed on the cross for our sin and how we've come into relationship with God. And we worship God as the great I was. Often in churches at the same time, we, we worship God as the great he will be, I will be. And we look to the future and we, we put our hope in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we look forward to the day when we will no longer uh, look at him like through a glass seen dimly, but the, as the scripture says, we'll behold him face to face and we worship him as the great I will be. And often, I would say, we forget to worship God as the great I am, which is present, which is the one who is sufficient to meet us here today. The one who is sufficient to meet the needs of today, to demonstrate his power to provide for today. And the reality is, is this, the, the Lord is here with us today. He is the great I am. Jesus said, where two or three of my people come together in my name, there I am with them. And I trust that, you know, as we worship the Lord and learn from his word this morning, that we'll sense his presence, that we'll sense the working of your spirit. See, God is the God of your past. He says, you're justified. He's the God of your presence, present, who says, you're sanctified. He's the God of your future, who says, you're glorified. See, the great I am, it's interesting when we think about it. I mean, it can mess with your thinking if you think about it too much. But he lives outside of the reality of time. He's the eternal God who has always existed and who will always exist. In God, in that sense, there is no past and there is no present and there is no future. See, we live within the reality and the confines of time. And we live with an incredible awareness of time. You know, we're always looking at our watches. Is he done yet? <laughs> 
What's for lunch? I'm hungry. I mean, we, you know, is it five o'clock? I want to go home from work. We live with an incredible awareness of time. Uh, I would say past, present, and future. We think about, you know, the dimensions of time, and we attach to them emotions. We say past, man, regret. <laughs> say, oh, future, I have hope, you know? We think about time and there's the joys of victory and there's the disappointments of our defeats, past, present, future. God dwells in eternity. And when God looks on us, he doesn't measure us in the confines of time. He measures us by one thing, Christ. And he sees us as the righteousness of God. Justified, sanctified, Glorified. Now it says in verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Now, Joseph said this on his deathbed. At the end of Genesis, when Joseph was on his deathbed, he said, God will surely visit you. And when he sees what's going on here, he's going to lead you out. And so in fulfillment to what was uh, spoken by jo Joseph, we read that there. Now, verse 15, 17 continues. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the Parasites, as we mentioned those guys last week too. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So straight up, the Lord tells Moses, look, when you go to this message, I'm sending you. We saw, we've seen as we've been going through that Moses once went before he was sent. Now he is being sent. God is sending this man and God says, when you go, this people are going to listen to this message of good news. This gospel message that you are going to proclaim. They will listen to your voice and you're going to go before Pharaoh and you're going to tell him, look, we need a long weekend. Give us three days off. Now, that's a reasonable request. We have a long weekend coming up next weekend. Looking forward to that? I am. It's, it's good. You know, we, um, we know that that's a reasonable thing to expect. In Canada, we totally expect that. We work a, a five-day work week, many of us. You know, if we're not shift workers, Monday to Friday. And you get Saturday and Sunday off. And, you know, a number of times a year, almost, you know, one for every month, we... We get a, a lo holiday long weekend. I mean, we're blessed. And so, you know, and the good thing about it is we get like stat pay and all this sorts of things. It's awesome. And, you know, we understand that it's reasonable to take a long weekend. In fact, in Canada, we actually think it's reasonable to like pay employees vacation pay and allow them to even big, book bigger chunks of time off. And so, you know, What's going on here at the start of this whole confrontation that's going to happen with Pharaoh is God says, well, let's just take him a reasonable request. Three days off to show and to demonstrate 
how unreasonable this taskmaster is. See, these were slaves. There probably wasn't much happening for time off, you know, if there was any. The Israelites might have been working, you know, seven days a week. So the plan is this. Let's, let's make a reasonable request. And I'm going to demonstrate just how unreasonable this taskmaster is. Verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. See, he's unreasonable. Verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is beautiful. I mean, this is beautiful. When you consider that these Israelites have lived in over 400 years of slavery, oppressed by the hands of the Egyptian. And, and what that tells me is this, is that God sees the labors of his people. And the Lord's been keeping track of the unpaid wages of their labor. Uh, you know, we wonder about God. God, do you see? Do you see my service? Do you see my suffering? Do you see these things that are going on in my life? And what's the deal, Lord? Do I just chalk this up for another one in the character development list? Or is there a reward attached to this at some point in time? And as we've been seeing through Exodus, God says this, I know, I see, I hear. And you can rest this in this, assured in regards to the Lord, the rewards will come. Say, so, well, where are they? I, they will come. And as we're going to see, and as is the promise here, the Israelites will plunder the Egyptians. They'll hand over the gold and the silver as they leave. Now, as we come to chapter four, we got to keep something in our mind's eye, and it's this. Moses is still in front of the burning bush, okay? As we come to this part of the story, he's still there. I think that his nose is still probably to the ground because the Bible, it tells us in Exodus 3 there that when God began to speak, he was afraid to look, okay? So he put his face to the ground. And so let's imagine in our mind's eye, here's this 10 or 12 foot tree. It's, it's consumed in flame. It's not... It's not being burnt up as it burns. The angel of the Lord is standing in the midst of that flame, speaking through that fire to Moses. Moses is on the ground face down. He's taken off his sandals because this is a meeting place. It's a holy place where he met, he's met with God and he's not looking up. Now we read in verse one, as the Lord's been speaking to him, Moses begins to reply and he says this. And Moses answered, but behold, not, it's never good when you say but to the Lord. When you start a conversation with the Lord, you say, but Lord. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now, I don't know about you, but you read this story and you think, man, this doesn't seem like a very good time to be arguing with the Lord, Moses. Right? I mean, Anytime God gives you an instruction and you say, but, uh, you know, it's not good. And Moses says this to the Lord, behold. Do you know what that means? It means this, think about this. <laughs> Lord, 
I don't think you're thinking this one through. I mean, this is comical, right? Lord, I don't know if you understand the reality of this plan and all that, you know, you're saying, you know, maybe you should reconsider. You know, maybe you should uh, sit down and write a little pros and cons list and think about the reasons why this is a good idea and think about the reasons why this is not a good idea. That's the idea Moses is saying here. Not a good idea. You know, consider the instrument that you're choosing Consider the audience to whom you're sending me, and let me remind you of a little history. I have history with these people. They've al- I already tried the deliverer thing, Lord. They've already rejected me 40 years ago, and so when I go and give this message, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to my voice. They'll say, the Lord did not appear to you. And in verse 2, the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? He said, a staff. Uh, I'm, I'm sure in my mind as I read this, a million things began to go through Moses' mind as the Lord said, what's in your hand? You know, in his head, I think not arrogantly, I think with the humility of 40 years in the desert and what that produces, Moses thought this before he answered the Lord. What's in my hand? <laughs> well, it was supposed to be the scepter of Egypt. You know, and I tried the deliverer thing and they rejected me. My, in my hand is supposed to be the, the symbol of my rule. The symbol of the authority and the power of the position uh, that I was supposed to have. And for the last 40 years, you know, I have held in my hand this staff, the staff of a shepherd. I tend sheep with this staff. I've worn this piece of wood smooth with my hand. I know every crack and groove and, and knot. And I, I think some of those things were going through his mind before he answered the Lord. And he said to the Lord, it's, it's a staff. Now, you know, as God asked this question, he never asked the question because he didn't know what, held in Mo- what Moses held in his hand. He asked the question because Moses himself did not understand what he was holding in his hand. Later in this chapter, we're going to see this. Moses is not going to refer to this as just a staff soon. He's going to call it the staff of God. See, to him, this staff was just simply a tool of the trade, a tool for provision. Uh, I would say it was also a sign for him of his failure. And Moses was interpreting that which was in his hand on the basis of who he was rather than in light of who God is. What's in your hand? It's a staff. It's useless. See, he didn't know yet that with that very staff, he would strike the waters of the Nile and they would turn to blood. He didn't know that he would take that staff and put it into the waters of the Red Sea and that it would part so that the children of Israel could pass through on dry ground and escape the hand of the Pharaoh. He didn't know that the time would come when he would strike a rock and it would split open and water would flow out of that rock for the children of Israel in the desert. He didn't know that that staff would be laid in the presence of God and left there overnight and that it would grow and produce leaves and branches and almonds proving that he was God's chosen instrument and leader of the people of Israel. 
So when God says, what's in your hand? He's interpreting the light of who he is. He says, it's a staff. In verse three, it says, and he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. So Moses, you know, he had to throw down what was in his hand in the presence of God so that God might give life to it. And I guess, you know, the question for you and I is always this. Is there something in your hand? What is in your hand? We all have things that God has placed in our hand and we look at them and we say, this is dead and this is lifeless and I don't understand why it's here in my hand. I don't understand its purpose in my life. It's nothing more than a tool for my trade. It's, it's nothing more than a reminder of my failure. And look at you need God to breathe life into what is in your hand. You throw it down in the presence of the Lord. Moses threw it down. I mean, think about this. Apparently, all this time that he was before the burning bush and laid out before the presence of God, he's taken his sandals off. He won't look. All that time, there is a lifeless piece of wood held in his hand. In a sense, it it had become a part of who this man was. He was comfortable with that piece of wood. He, He was content to hold it and... And he may not have even realized it was in his hand until the Lord asked him that question. Throw it to the ground, Moses. And when he does, it turns into a snake, a serpent. And you just think about this, that it's a staff of a shepherd. It's probably long. It's probably as long or longer than Moses is tall. And so this is, you know, not your average little garter snake from the Sunshine Coast. This is a snake. The snake, the kind of snake that we're glad we don't have around here. And what does Moses do? <laughs> doesn't have his sandals on, uh, but that doesn't stop him from running, okay? I was thinking about my mom. There was some poem that she taught me when I was learning to tie my shoes. I can't remember exactly how it goes. Something like crisscross under the bridge. I, I don't know. Maybe you learned a poem. Moses does not stop to do the poem and to tie the sandals. <laughs> He's gone, okay? Snake, Run! Now, this is the first of three signs that God is going to give Moses. And as much as, you know, uh, we love to glorify these Bible characters beyond their humanity, it's important that we see Moses is very much like you and I. He's very human. He argues with God. You don't argue with God. You argue with God. And God is very patient. God is patient with Moses. God is patient with you. He's patient with me. And there is this exercise as, you know, we argue with God and he presses his point that we have to come to this place where we learn to trust him, where we put our faith in him, where we learn to walk by faith. Because the reality is this, God will have his way. God always has his way. He will have his way and his people need to learn to trust him. And so Moses is given three signs and these three signs are given to him to help build his confidence that God is with him. Look at verse four, it says this. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. 
Now, I recall a couple years back, my little Eli, he's not in the room, but he's a snake catcher, man, extraordinaire. In fact, you know, this time of year, he likes to walk home from school so that he can come along the waterfront and catch all the snakes on his way home. And a couple years ago on July 1st, we were over at the Canada Day celebration here at Wine Garden Park, and he's down on the beach doing his thing. You know, other kids are running around and playing in the bouncy castles and this and that, and Eli is catching snakes and oblivious to all the women around him. He's terrifying people in the park. And finally, he catches this big, fat water snake, like a big one. And he made the mistake of grabbing it by the tail. You know, those, those water snakes are vicious. That thing uh, spun around, and it bit him in his hand. And he went like this, and it got him right there, and it was hanging from his hand. And um, he was quite proud of the war wound that it left. <laughs> Fang marks on the upper and underside of his hand. It was a very thrilling experience for a young snake catcher. Look, everyone knows this. You don't catch snakes by the tail, right? Especially big, dangerous snakes, you get them behind the head, right? God's instruction was take hold of the snake by the tail, and as Moses did, a miracle happened. That snake hardened and turned back to his staff. You think about this, every pharaoh... Uh, wore on his crown or on his headdress a serpent, an emblem. It was the emblem of the throne of Egypt. It was, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a symbol of their throne. And Moses had been on the run. We know for, from Egypt for 40 years. Just like he ran from that snake, he was on the run from Egypt. And, and God is showing him, I, I'm giving you a certain authority here, Moses, You know, the first time that we're introduced to a serpent in the scripture, we know is where? In Genesis. And that serpent comes and he deceives Eve and and she eats of the tree and Adam willingly participates with her in the the garden. This this serpent, you know, represents in a picture, in in an idea there, Satan and evil. And Moses is, uh, the Lord is saying to Moses, you've been given authority. You've been given power, power over the servant. Moses, you need to know this. The angel of the Lord has power over the serpent. And so the sign was given to Moses to confirm the fact. I am with you. And this is a miracle you will perform in front of the people of Egypt. Uh, It is a miracle you will perform in front of the people of Israel. It is a miracle you will perform in front of the people of Israel. And so, you know, it's interesting. This is actually the first miraculous sign ever given to a human being in the Bible. Did you know that? You know, miracles happen in Genesis, but no human being was given the ability to perform a miracle themselves before this instance right here. Besides Jesus, actually, the Bible says that no one ever did more miracles than Moses. He's he's a mighty man of God. Second sign, verse six. And the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they will believe the latter. They may believe the latter sign. And we know this about leprosy. Leprosy is an incurable disease. And so this miracle tells us that God can turn around 
that which is impossible. The angel of the Lord can work in that which is impossible. Moses is told, put your hand into your cloak. Other Bible versions say this, put your hand into your bosom. That's the old language. Speaking of the inner life, put your hand over your heart, Moses. And so he puts his hand inside his cloak, over his heart, into his bosom in that idea. And when he pulls it out, his hand is leprous. It's a reflection of the human heart. God is showing him what the human heart is like. See, it's very human to think that my hands determine what's in my heart. What, what I do determines the center of who I am and what my life is about. Um, but it's actually the opposite. The Bible teaches us that out of the heart, everything in our life happens. It's the fountain of our life. The hands work from the heart. You know, we say, well, my hands, the actions of my hands are determined by my mind. No, they're determined by your heart to do good, to do bad, to honor God, to do evil. And as human beings, we share a heart condition. The Bible calls it sin. Leprosy in the Bible is a picture of sin. See, we love to believe that our hearts are good, but the Bible says this, that apart from God, apart from meeting Jesus Christ and him giving you a new heart, the heart is wicked and it is deceitful, Jeremiah 17, and it is beyond cure and no one can understand it except God. Sin, that's the issue of the heart. You know, there's many sins that I have physically participated in. And thank God, there's many that I have not physically participated in. But I can tell you this about my life, and the reason why I can say this is because I know it's true for your life as well. In my heart, I've done them all. You know, in my heart, I've strangled more than one person, especially on Highway 101, uh, as you guys know about me. <laughs> you know, in my heart, I've committed you know, adultery. In my heart, I am an idolater. In my heart, I am full of pride. In my heart, I have declared myself God. You, you know, and the issue of my heart is singular, like the issue of your heart is singular. It's not sins. It's sin in the Bible. It, it is one issue. And the apostle John himself said that yeah, if we claim to be without sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. He says, when I make that claim that I, that I have no sin, he says, you just deceive yourself. You're not fooling anybody else. Not fooling God. You're only deceiving yourself. And the doing of our hands is a reflection of the heart. My, my hands do the bidding of my heart. And Jesus also said this, that our mouths speak out of the heart, that our mouths reveal what's going on in the heart. What's happening there? And so this is a gospel miracle here, people. This is, a, this is a life-changing miracle that God is pointing out to Moses. He's saying, I'm the God who changes the heart. Put your hand in there. Oh, it's leprous. Put it back in there. It's restored. God changes the human heart. God brings salvation. It says in verse 9, if they will not believe these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So this is the third sign. 
Water's pretty powerful, pretty powerful symbol in the, in the book of Exodus so far. The waters of the Nile are life for the Egyptians, and we've seen their death for the Israelites, right? Little Moses was only saved from the waters of the Nile because in faith, his parents built a little ark and they put him on the waters of the, the Nile and God protected him there. But for many Israelite families, because their little baby boys were tossed into that river in a genocide, the waters of the Nile represented death. On the other hand, for the Egyptians, the Nile represented life. In fact, we know from Egyptian history that they even deified the Nile River. They made it a god. And Egypt had this incredible ability to irrigate their land with the waters of the Nile, with canals and systems of irrigation. And as we talked about in the very first message from this series, that it was this picture of Egyptians Egypt's self-sufficiency, that they, that they look to the earth and they look to themselves for sufficiency rather than looking to the heavens for God to pour out his rain and looking for God to provide. They lived the self-sufficient life rather than the Jesus-centered life. And so Moses is told, take that water from the Nile, pour it out on the dry ground, and it will become blood on the dry ground. The, the earth will not, the situation of the earth will not change. It'll turn to blood. So this was a sign of judgment for Egypt, but I would say this, it was a sign of redemption for the people of God. Now you'd think that all these signs would be sufficient for Moses, right? Confident now, look, okay, God, argument's over, man, you win, uncle, not Moses. Look at verse 10. (laughs) I like it because he's like you and me. You know, the journey to the Jesus-dependent life comes with a lot of arguing from this wicked heart. And I need Jesus to change it. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Now now just listen to the eloquency of this one sentence, okay, from this uneloquent man. Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in past or since. You have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses, really? <laughs> okay, let's give him a little bit of a benefit for the doubt right you know, benefit of the doubt right now. Fair enough. He's been talking and preaching to sheep for 40 years. Um, but let's not minimize this guy's skill, as we've seen. Acts chapter 7, Stephen tells us that before he left Egypt, this man was schooled and trained in all the ways of the Egyptians. We see that history tells us he was an Egyptian general. Stephen says he was mighty in his words and he was mighty in his deeds, okay? Uh, Dynamic leader. In front of a burning bush, he doesn't seem to have any problem, you know, talking with God or even posing an argument with God. I mean, and I would say none of us talk as well as he does to the Lord in verse 10. So, you know, I don't know. He's not Shakespeare, but uh, he's certainly eloquent. And so what does the Lord Say to him when he claims to have no eloquence, uh, verse 11, check it out. And the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? This is, this is humorous, right? So they banter back and forth. Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. I will be your mouth 
and will teach you what you shall speak. The Lord says, look, Moses, don't tell me you can't talk. Who do you think made your mouth, man? You're talking to me right now. And I think something really powerful is seen here as the Lord says, who made man's mouth? The Lord also says this, look, who makes a man mute or, or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Wow, that's insightful into the, uh, who God is. M- Moses, your mouth that I made and that I've allowed to be open will speak my glory to the people of Israel. And they'll listen. And Pharaoh's going to listen as well. You know that John chapter 9 tells a story of a blind man who was brought before Jesus. And the crowds and the Pharisees and his disciples were all there. And Jesus was asked, a man who was blind from birth, the Bible says, who made, why is this man blind? They said, did this man's parents sin? Or did the man sin? And they were looking to find some secret reason why this man was born blind. And Jesus answered them and he said, no, neither was it this man, nor was it his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, that man's blindness was meant to bring glory to God and God healed him. The book of Acts tells us that that was called the, well, what was called the gate beautiful an entrance into the temple, there sat there for years a man who was lame from birth. From birth. That means he was hanging out at this gate a little while. And for three years previous, if you think about it, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, walked in and out of that gate. I wonder how many times has that man sat there lame. Never healed him. Never touched him. Lame from birth, but for the glory of God. Jesus ignored him. I wonder what that was like for that lame man, you know? All the miracles and the rumors and the stories of what was happening in Jerusalem as Jesus was healing people, but not this man. One day, Peter and John came walking towards him, and he asked them for a little silver or gold, and you know the story. He said, silver or gold have I none. But what I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise and walk. And the man stood up. And he, he walked and he jumped and he leaped and he praised God. And Jesus Christ was glorified. See, Jesus may not have healed him at that point. But Jesus Christ was glorified in his life. And Peter and John were used mightily. And so the Lord says, look, who makes the mouth? Who makes all these things? God, and it's, God in t- it's God's intent. You know, you think about your life. It's, God in- it's God's intention, whatever it might be, that he would glorify himself in that issue. So Moses concedes. Okay, Lord. To your glory, you made my mouth. You made the eyes. You made the ears. You know, in other words, God, you could send anyone you want. Here's the next part of the argument. You don't... You know, I really think you should send someone else. Check it out, verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be your mouth 
and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. Verse 16, he shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Now this is kind of, it's amazing. This, the Lord makes this sort of concession in a sense to Moses. It's interesting that as much as Aaron is a blessing, he also is a bit of a curse in, in Moses' life. You know, Moses argues and he argues and he argues. And the Lord says, okay, I'll give you a mouth. You'll be like to this man, God. But as we know, you know, Aaron was a part of a number of the rebellions that rose up against Moses. It was Aaron who fashioned the golden calf and crumbled, bent his knee to the will of the people and led them to worship false gods. It, it was Aaron who led one of the major rebellions against Moses with, along with his sister and that whole scene. So we're going we're gonna to see Aaron, as much as he is, he's a blessing, there's a curse attached to this too, in a sense. Verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Interesting. Moses doesn't, you know, check this out. Stay cool. He doesn't do the, he doesn't do the miracles. I, I think that this is a little bit of insight into his heart. He's still, a, he's still afraid. He doesn't show his hand to, to Jethro in a sense. Look at this. Verse 19, and the Lord said to Moses and Midian, he's got to be told again, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Here's more insight into this man's heart. There's a fear in there. In the midst of all of this arguing with God, in the midst of all these signs and this powerful encounter, he's, he's like you and I. There's, there's fear holding him back. He's afraid for his life. He, he's holding back in self preservation. There, there were those who were seeking in the past to kill him. And so to calm those fears, God speaks to me. He says, those who are seeking your life, they're, they're gone. They're dead. Now go. Verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. That's one worth underlining right there. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand, the symbol of authority. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Holy smokes, Lord, that's pretty harsh. Doesn't that seem pretty harsh? Israel is my firstborn and you let him go or I'll kill your son. Um, now that sounds really harsh, but we got to remember this. The Lord doesn't start there. He's far more gracious than that. He says, let's start with an attempt for three days off. <laughs> and as we know that the story goes and it just builds, Pharaoh's resistance to God and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart escalates and escalates and escalates. Now we're going to get to this point in this story where we're going we're gonna to read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Five times the story will tell us God hardened Pharaoh's heart and five times the story will tell us Pharaoh hardened his heart, his own heart, okay? And uh, it's actually two different words used 
<coughs> used to describe the hardening of the heart. When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it's the same word that was used to describe when Moses took hold of the tail of the serpent. It stiffened. Interesting picture. Remember I said Pharaoh in the previous message is a type of Satan. He's a, a type of the certain serpent. And so as God is demonstrating power over the serpent, over Satan, there's a hardening that comes as God begins to put the mighty hand on Pharaoh. The word used to describe the process that's happening in Pharaoh's heart as he hardens his own heart, it could actually be translated that it was dull. That his heart was dull, or we would say stubborn, okay? So when the Bible says hardened in English, it's, it's really two different pictures. The stiffening or this dulling stubbornness. But remember what God has said. It's my plan. I'm going to bring my people out with a mighty hand. And so I guess the question is, you know, and we're going to, you know, as you go through this, the question is this, where's the balance between God's sovereignty and man's free will to choose and that whole dynamic and how that works? And, you know, that's a good question. Let's move on. <laughs> oh, it's a good question. And I don't have the answer. I'm just telling you the question. That's the question. You know, the Bible never boxes God into a nice, tight, theological package that says, here, you can, you can understand this. You can work this into the framework of your little finite mind. This is the eternal God working here. And he doesn't leave it to a system of human th theology And when we take human systems of theology and we, we try to argue, we end up arguing for the system of theology rather than for Jesus Christ. And you know what I love about this? I appreciate the mystery of who God is. And that's what I would encourage you to do. Appreciate the mystery of who God is, that he cannot be boxed in to a little system. And yet, he loves you and he loves me perfectly. And in fact, he loves us equally. And he loves the whole world, the Bible says. And if the system of theology would lead you to say, no, he doesn't, well, that's not what the Bible says. That's what your system of theology says. Israel is God's firstborn. And here we're going to read a strange story. Next, okay? We'll wrap up with this really strange story. Moses' own home was out of order. And so before he can be sent, you know, there's been a working happening in his heart. Before he can be sent to God's people as a deliverer, first he's got to get his house in order. Let's check it out. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way. Kind of a neat picture. Moses has got his wife and his sons. They're riding on a donkey. Remind you, remind you of another picture in the Bible? Going to Egypt. Joseph took Mary and Jesus, and they went to Egypt as well. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Sephora took a flint life, a flint, and cut off her son's foreskin. And this is weird. And touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, that's God, so he let him alone. 
It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Uh, God made a covenant with Abraham. We know this from Genesis chapter 15 through 17. In Genesis 17, the Lord instituted an outward expression of the covenant that he had made with Abraham and with his descendants. It was to be an everlasting practice and an expression, an outward expression of an inward reality. We have baptism as Christians. And baptism, we're not saved by baptism, but baptism and being baptized in water is an outward expression of an inward reality. I've been buried with Christ. I've been raised to life, been born again. Okay? This is an outward expression, the rite of circumcision for males on the eighth day after their birth. That's what it was instructed. Now, what separates Pharaoh and the people of Egypt from Moses and the people of God is this. One is involved in a covenant relationship with the living God and the other is not. Now, the Bible actually says this in, in, um, in the Hebrew original language, when God makes a covenant, he doesn't make a covenant, he cuts a covenant. That, that's the Hebrew wording. God cut a covenant with Abraham. Think of this, like two tribes. They enter into an agreement with one another. They do the, hey, we're blood brothers now. They cut hands. They shake hands. The blood mingles together. Not only that, in ancient times when tribes would do that and they would become blood brothers and form a covenant relationship with one another, they would also say, I'll take part of your name, you take part of my name. And there would be a change of name. Now, when God entered into covenant with Abram, remember, he wasn't yet Abraham, he was Abram. His wife wasn't Sarah, she was Sarai. God gave him part of his name. Remember, we talked lots about the divine name last week. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. God takes the H from his name. He says, we're in covenant now. There's been a cutting. Blood has been spilt. You take part of my name, Abram. You're now Abraham. Your wife, Sarai, is Sarah. We know those are reflections of the name of God in their names. In fact, God took a new name. He said, I'm the God of Abraham. And so when there is a cutting of a covenant, there's a letting of blood. And we know this, that a part, um, that we're a part of the new covenant in Christ's blood, that there was a, a letting of blood. We have an outward symbol of that relationship that we have with Christ. We participate in the Lord's Supper. We drink from the cup, which represents his blood that was shed. We eat of the, the bread, which represents his body that was broken. And the Bible says, we've been given a new name. And as the hymn says, it's written down in glory. You know, we, the Bible says, if we're going to go to heaven. God is going to reveal to us the name that was given to us. And so God is a covenant God. He's a covenant keeping God. And Moses is sent as the representative of the covenant-keeping God. The problem is, is, that th is this, that in Genesis 17, the Lord says that the Hebrew male who fails to be marked by circumcision is to be cut off from the people of God. Now, it appears that this has to do with Moses' second son. We get the impression that as we read, you know, Zephora is not very impressed with this whole situation, not enthralled with the right of 
You're a bridegroom of blood. I think there was anger in those words as she said that. She said it twice to him. And, um, you know, Sephora was a Gentile. The Gentiles did not practice circumcision. You know, lots of cultures, the Gentiles at that point in time, I think, considered it totally brutal. Uh, she obviously had a very hard time with Moses and this right regarding their firstborn son, Gershom. And by the time the second boy comes along, Zephora's resistance had caused her husband to cave to the pressure. And the second son was not circumcised. And the picture is this. Moses has not been the spiritual head of his home. He hasn't been the leader in his house. And if he can't lead his own home, how is he going to go and lead a people of Israel that's numbers over 2 million, possibly 3 million people, where there's 600,000 males over the age of 20, many of whom have not been participating in the same rite. The Bible tells us that there's going to be a circumcision that's going to happen in this process as they exit the land. And so, you know, uh, with Moses' life hanging in the balance, with God ready to kill him, Zephora realizes what's happening. And after resisting and seemingly not being an, an, an overly willing participant, she circumcises the son and the covenant with God, the covenant of Abraham is honored. It's, it's just kind of a crazy picture. I mean, we t- I, t- I mentioned this last week. Zephora is a type for us of the church. Moses is a type of deliverer, Christ. We know that just like Moses was rejected by the people of Israel as their deliverer, so Jesus was rejected by the people of Israel by their deliverer. And when when Egypt rejected Moses, Moses went and he took for himself a Gentile bride. When the people of Israel rejected Jesus, Jesus went and he took for himself a Gentile bride. She's called a church. And as Moses returns to Egypt to work the mighty hand of God to bring judgment on the nation of Egypt, which represents the world, to bring, to lead out the people of Israel, the covenant children of Abraham, Zephorah in this story separates from her husband at this point. She turns and she goes back to her father with the children and she stays with her father until the judgment of God has happened on Egypt. The people of Israel led across the Sinai desert to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is parted. They cross and Moses meets his wife again on the other side. I think it's a very powerful picture of the church. That God has not forgotten his covenant with Abraham. That he is still working amongst the children of Israel. That he has a plan for them. He has a purpose. And the time will come when his church will be removed from the situation. He'll bring his judgment upon the earth. And he will lead Israel out. And the bride will meet him again on the other side of the sea. It's a great picture. Husbands and wives. You know, I would say this story about Moses and Sephora speaks to us the importance of training our children in the things of God. It speaks to us the importance of men being spiritual leaders in your home. Set the tone. Set the pace. 
honor the word of God, you know, whatever it is. Uh, you know, it, it, it teaches us, you know, wives not to resist, but allow your husband to lead spiritually. Get behind him. Be, his, be on his side. Sit down together. Talk about spiritual things in your home. Set the tone together, and then why? let your husband lead and do it together. It's just, it's a powerful story. Verse 27, let's read right through the end of the chapter here. Wrap it up. Lord said to Aaron, it's Moses' brother, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. The bros, man. The bros get back together. They haven't seen one another in 40 years. Aaron was eight years older. Moses is 80 years old. Uh, Aaron's 88. You just got to wonder what that reunion was like. Pretty cool. The old bros. Verse 28. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went, and they gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads, and they worshiped. They worshiped. That's the appropriate response, and that's what we're going to do right now. So we've heard from the word of God, we're, we're going to worship. I can invite the worship team to come, and this morning we're, we're not quite dismissed yet. We're going to just take uh, 10 minutes to sing to the Lord, to respond to him, and uh, just to seek him. And I don't know if, you know, the Lord has struck something in your heart this morning. Maybe there is something that God has said, man, you are clinging to that staff. That sign of failure, that sign of the tool of your trade has just become something that you cling so tightly to. You should throw it down in my presence and let me breathe some life into that. You know, maybe it's thoughts about your family and your role in the training of your children Whatever it might be, I encourage you to just respond to the Lord as we worship this morning.